name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is a confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He heareth us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And today we're going to be focusing in on verse 16 and 17, looking at these petitions. Specifically, this is sort of an addition to the previous couple of verses that are dealing with, with prayer. Specifically, we look back and he said, you know, in verse 14, we can have confidence in him uh, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, right? Confidence in prayer, which we should have. We, we've spent a lot of time in the past talking about prayer and, and looking at how we have confidence, um, not in our prayer because of how we pray, how long we pray, but rather because we have confidence in the God that we pray to, the God that we fellowship with and commune with, the very one that we see that we're praying confidently because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to allow us the privilege to pray, to be able to go to the Father and have access to His presence. And then we see in verse 15, and if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. We talked last week that we know that God is always answering prayer. We often think that because something doesn't get answered on our time or in our way or maybe the very specific of how we think it should have been or how we have prayed that certain thing that we think that's unanswered. Well, God answers, truly, every prayer. But He does so in His time and in His way, His purposes and His plan. And so we cannot be thinking that prayer is going, well, it's, it's just not working or there's no point in praying because um, you know I, I'm just not breaking through or all these different things. We have to trust and know that God is answering prayer. He might not be answering it right now in this moment, the moment I prayed it, right? We're not talking about a microwave sort of thing. Like I prayed, press 30-second prayer button, and then boom, it came out and God answered. Right? We've got to understand that we've got to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. Not because God is wanting to dangle us on some sort of string and waiting, but rather that He's teaching us through waiting. God answers prayer in His delay. Some of the greatest things that He teaches us happens when He does what we consider delay. God never truly delays in His time. From His perspective, God is always on time. God is always working. God is always right there. You know, God is not just now present. He's in our past. He's in the past of all eternity. And just as the same as He's in the future already. For you and I, all we can do is be right here. Our minds at times might be able to drift back to the past, or sometimes they wander and thinking or daydreaming about the future. But we can never actually be in the past, nor can we ever actually be in the future, but yet God Himself, past, present, future, at all times, in all places. And so we've got to understand, from our perspective at times, prayer seems as if it's unanswered, or prayer seems as if it's, the answer's delayed. But for God, it is right there every single time. 
Now, we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. He gets a little bit more specific with these prayers and he goes into sort of these petitions. That's the idea of a very specific prayer. And this is verse 16 and 17 dealing with sort of one big issue. And that is praying for sin. Praying for sin. Not praying to sin, right? Not praying, uh, praying I can sin, but praying when I do sin. And praying as well for our brothers and sisters who are found in sin. Now, this is something that's kind of a, a tough uh, topic to deal with. But let's look here, verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, and we'll get into what that means in a, in a moment, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now look here. First of all, we need to pray for a brother who is in sin. Notice this though. He says, if any man see his brother sin a sin. You and I cannot see the inward sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? You can't see my thoughts. You can't see my reactions inside, my feelings, my emotions. You can't see those things, can you? No. No, we can see some outward workings of that, right? Certainly. But you can only see the outward sins. You could only see um, or hear a, a, a verbal response. You could hear gossip. You could maybe see pride boasting. You could see those outward things manifest themselves. You can see violence. You can see drunkenness. You can see lots of things but you cannot see the inward part. So this is dealing with something that is outward sin. Now, you and I, sadly, we see that many of us don't struggle, if you will, as much with these big, bold, outward sins that we would think of the world. Nevertheless, you and I have plenty of outward sin for our brothers and sisters to see. If you want to find sinners at their best and at their worst, come to church, right? You will find them at their best because they will be behaving their very best. But you can also find a sinner at their very worst inside of a church. Now, we look here. One author writes, he says, When his readers see fellow believers or a brother committing a sin, the author says they are to pray for them. The fact that the readers may see a fellow believer fall into sin indicates that the sin is observable, not some internal attitude. I would say that everything that is observable with sin, every observable sin that there is, always comes from an inward sin already. It has to. Um, you think about this. Let's, let's relate it to this. Would you say, if you saw somebody stealing a car, that's an outward sin, right? But what would you say would be the inward sin for that? Maybe greed or coveting, right? So there's got to be an inward sin that lines up with that. But even more specifically, we could boil the inward sins down to, to very, a simple idea of this. We have inward sin that comes down to us either lifting ourselves up and trying to pull God down or not lifting God up high enough or adding multiple gods, right? The sort of idolatry. Idolatry is what I would consider the inward sin. Immorality is what I would consider the outward sin. Now, we often preach and we talk bad about the immorality of the world in the day, but we've got to talk even more specifically, I believe, about the indwelling idolatry of man's heart. Uh, the idolatry of man's heart is what causes the immorality that's out in the, in the open. But he talks about specifically here, if we see a brother who is out and in the open, an outward rebellion, open rebellion against God, against his word, what should we do? You know what you should do? Pick up the phone, call the directory, let everybody know. No, of course not. However, what often happens is that's what happens, isn't it? Yeah, I can tell you this, prayer works a whole lot better than gossip does. We've got to understand that when we see someone who is outward and open sin, right? And, and by the way, 
there's many times that you think you find somebody in outward open sin, and it's not, but there's some bad appearances of things, or maybe you've got a heart against them already. There's a multitude of issues here that are very much underlying. Nevertheless, if we were to find somebody, right, if you're walking down the road or you're walking out in the parking lot and, and we see somebody in the church, a good faithful member, and they're out trying to hotwire somebody's car in the parking lot during, during the invitation time, you're going to tell somebody, aren't you, right? You're going to tell security, they're going to go run them down, right? The whole thing. No, you're going to tell somebody, why? Because this is, this is not good. This is an outward open sin. But what should be our first response for anything? Anytime that we find sin, outward for someone else, inward for ourselves, it should be prayer. Stott writes, The way to deal with sin in the congregation is to pray. And God hears such prayer. We've got to understand that God would much rather hear us coming to Him on behalf of someone else who is in outward and open sin than to hear us going to someone else to talk about that person's outward open sin. Now, you might go, and Baptists are known for this, we, we make gossip as sharing prayer requests, right? Well, I've got to tell you this, right? Well, you know, I just want you to pray for this because I saw so-and-so at the so-and-so and they had such-and-such in their buggy or they were with so-and-so or I heard they were listening to rock and roll music in their car sitting at the stoplight. All these different things, right? You think about it. We laugh, but have we not all heard that before? Someone call you and say this or pull you off to the side and say these things. The way to deal with sin in church is the same way to deal with sin in your own life. It's prayer and confession. And we've got to look and understand that the health of our church, and I would say even further, the health of our communities, are dependent upon confession of sin. We cannot allow sin in the camp. Right? Think about that. In the Old Testament, what would happen? It, when sin came in the camp, God was either going to strike them dead or what they were going to do, He was going to tell them, send them out. They have to be purified. Now, I'm not saying because you saw somebody, we've got to go, hey, you're not allowed back at church next week because I've seen what you did, right? Not the idea. The idea is this, though, that you are very much a key player in the life of this church and in the spiritual life of your brothers and sisters. You might go, well, I can't control them. I can't tell them what to do. I can't be their Holy Spirit. I agree with that. You can't be their Holy Spirit, but you can pray for them. Pray for them. If they truly are a brother or sister in the faith, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them and draw them back. Pray that maybe the Lord would use you or someone else to, to bring them back in. Pray for them. And remember as well in this, as we pray for that fallen brother, as we pray for that one who is now outwardly sinning or openly sinning against God, May your heart not be boastful or prideful. And that's a dangerous spot. Because I see somebody who I know, is, you know was at church last Sunday morning, and oh, now I saw that outward sin this week, and they don't know I saw it. Well, I, I've got a couple options here. One, and here's what we often do, I can feel pretty good about my spiritual walk with the Lord now, can't I? I go, well, I, you know, I'm not doing that. So, well, good to know I'm at least not at the bottom of the totem pole at church, right? We're not looking for that. This is no competition. There are no totem poles here about who's more spiritual than the other here. As a matter of fact, what we're supposed to do and called to do is to help edify and encourage and build up the body. So what they need more than ever and what you need more than ever is not to grow prideful that you didn't have that outward sin. Be careful lest you fall into the same. 
It's the grace of God that keeps us from such. We've got to look here. It is our role to pray for one another because it purifies and protects the church of God. We've got to pray. Pray for one another. Be willing to know each other and to fellowship with each other, to know each other, to see each other. And if you do find, and if there is open and outward rebellious sin, pray. And not just to pray that they'd go away or pray that they'd stop. Pray sincerely. I would say to you this. Pray for them the same way that you would want them to pray for you. You would want someone to pray urgently and fervently for you if you were found in sin or if you were in great need uh, uh, spiritually or physically, right? You would want everybody in the world praying for you that you would get things right. But you pray the same way that you would, you would pray for you. As we look then now in verse 16, we see that we've got to pray for a brother who's in outward sin. But then he says, which they see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. There is life in repentance. There is life in freedom in prayer. There is life in freedom found in reconciliation. Right? But then he says, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All in righteousness sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Well, what does it mean to have a sin unto death? In short, the believer can sin to the place and the degree where God says, enough. And that's a scary thing. In the Old Testament, and God hasn't changed since the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well, and we'll, we'll see, an author writes about this in a little bit. We see many times where someone sinned against God in the Old Testament, especially during the wilderness time or trying to go in, into the, the promised land conquest and things. Somebody would sin. God either strikes them down or their family, their tent, if you will, or there's times where he opens up the ground, swallows them by the thousands, where he sends in uh, the poisonous snakes to come and to bite all those who uh, have sinned, and unless they look to the bronze serpent, they'll die. Right? How about this? There's fire, hail, brimstone, the whole thing. How about the New Testament? Do we not find people dying from such? We absolutely do. And we'll look at a few cases here in a little bit if, we get, if the Lord allows us to get to it. We find this. We don't take sin near serious as God does. Now, I'm thankful that my sin, every sin, every single sin, every single sin you've ever sinned, inward and outward, is covered by the blood of Jesus. Praise God for that, right? But we've got to still yet take it serious to not fall into such outwardly or inwardly or to think that it's not that big of a deal and that God would just bat his eye now. Look at this. Sin unto death is often referred to as a mortal sin. Barclay writes, The mortal sin is the state of those who have listened to sin, and refuse to listen to God so often that they love sin and regard it as the most profitable thing in the world. Now, that's a scary thing for a believer to get into such a place. If we see it's happened to some degree, and First John, as he's writing, he goes, you're not going to be right if you keep on sinning, if you stay in the state of sin. It's not going to work out good. How many of you know that? The more time you spend in the flesh, how close you are to the Lord, you're not close to Him. Things are a mess when we're in the flesh. Your whole world seems as if 
falling apart or imploding from the inside. While there is much debate about the meaning of the passage, it is clear that sin unto death is one that is, first of all, unrighteous, because every sin is unrighteous. It's unfaithful, because when we sin against God, it's showing a lack of faith and faithfulness to Him, and as well, unrepentant. That's important here. We look here and we see that this is sin, that it leads to death when it is not repented of. Repentance is not just for your salvation. Repentance is the key to your sanctification. Wake up. Repent. Have breakfast. Repent. Right? Think about this. We kind of joke about it, but isn't there not a great need for us to repent throughout our day? And I believe the issue is that we're not as sensitive to the Spirit as we once used to be. We've become desensitized because of the things of the world. We've been uh, rooted down into our jobs, our lives, our busyness, and all these things that we then come to repentance and we think of it as just, well, Lord, if I did anything wrong today, forgive me. If I did anything wrong, I mean, goodness gracious. You think about this. You ask a child when they come home from school, what'd you do today? Or, or what'd you learn today? Did you learn anything? You know what the answer always is? No. Okay, right? Or they'll say, they'll start off maybe this way. Did you learn anything today? Yeah. What'd you learn? I don't know. Right? If we sin today, you should know the sin that you commit each day. Not that we're writing this in some sort of journal and logbook, because praise God, that's covered by, by Christ. But nevertheless, we should know hey, you just lied, you just gossiped, you were just prideful, you were just boastful, you were just lusting, you were just coveting, all these things. And what should be happening each time that happens? Lord, forgive me. What does John tell us already? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is there? There's a promise that when that sin happens, the very moment it happens, what should we be doing? Lord, I'm confessing you my fault. I'm confessing my sin. Forgive me, cleanse me, renew me, and help me to walk in victory. It's a, it truly is as simple as such. But here's what happens, though. Here's the loss. Here's the sin unto death. First of all, there's a physical death and spiritual loss. First of all, sin in the life of the believer always leads to temporary loss of fellowship, but also can lead to eternal loss of rewards. Wood, hay, and stubble. This is why I believe that Jesus talks about it and says, the first will be last, and last will be first. Those who really seem to be something on this earth probably aren't going to be a whole lot in heaven, sadly. There's very few believers who live a spirit-filled life of humility and faith and trust in the Lord. I believe those that do, though, it's because they're eternally minded. They're eternally focused. The goal, the purpose of their life is for eternal things. Unfaithful servants are not going to be given much reward one day. They might have heaven. But there might not be much reward. And I believe much of that reward will come during the kingdom where we will be able to rule and reign for Christ and with Him, where we will be given responsibilities and roles and jobs and things. And this is why I believe that He says that the last be first and the first will be last. Secondly, this is also a reference to God ending the physical life of an unrepentant believer. Commentator writes, this is a difficult concept, but we have an example of it in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30, where Paul says among the Christians in Corinth, because of their disgraceful conduct at the Lord's Supper, some had died 
He says, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. This death came not as a condemning judgment, but as a corrective judgment. When we are judged and chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11.32 Apparently a believer can sin to the point where God believes it is just best to bring them home. Probably because they have in some way compromised their testimony so significantly that they should just come on home to God. For the believer, there's nothing greater than going home to be with our Lord. However, it would be a sorrowful day if we allow our life to, be, to get to such a place where we have no more use to God on this earth. We hear people talk all the time and say, you know, uh, that they want to be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, but that's not what the Christian life is should be. That we are so heavenly minded, eternally minded, that we are earthly good. Because while we're here, and this is about a short time, God has a plan and a purpose to use us for His glory, to demonstrate His glory to the lost world. That they might then in turn, as we see, as Jesus preaches, let your light so shine before men that they may see and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. It's so that we can reflect the glory of God so that we may then see the glory of God directed back to Him so that He may get the glory in our lives. So that others may come to know Him. Unfortunately, many believers who have experienced the grace of God at salvation abuse the grace of God in their sanctification. We love the grace of God, but sometimes we abuse the grace of God. We go, well, I can, I can go ahead and sin this sin. No, one's gonna, no one else is going to know about it. And I know God's grace will cover it. It's already paid for. So I'll just go ahead and do it. It's a sad thing that we do, isn't it? As Paul had written, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he said, God forbid. I know that God's grace and mercy is there. And I know that I can repent at any moment. And I know that repentance is a part of my daily life and should be, but yet I don't want to add up to my list of things that I've got to repent for. We should not be willingly going out of our way to go, you know, I'm going to go ahead and send this just because I know I can ask for forgiveness and it'll be all right. That's an abuse of God's grace. Sorensen writes, all sin leads to death. And it does, doesn't it? There, there's Truly, all sin does lead to death to a degree. It might not be a physical death. You might not sin and then God says, boop, you're out, right? Gone, you're done. But there might be this decaying on the inward. Those who are truly saved should be what? full of life, full of joy, have a wellspring of living water within us. And yet we see so many who are dry, thirsty, rotting away. He writes, you can see Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are many who believe that that verse in Romans 6.23 to be dealing with this very thing. And I would tend to agree that it has that application that for the wages of sin is death, meaning... Continue in sin, there will be death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we can see earlier on in that passage, just a few verses, is that it's dealing with those who used to be, right? We're now saved. We used to be slaves and servants to sin, but now we get to serve Christ our Savior. We are no longer bound as slaves to sin and to the world or even to our own flesh. Sorensen continues, he says, However, in some cases, God deems it time for a person to leave this life immediately. In other words, God kills him. 
For example, recall how God slew the rebels during the Exodus at the gainsaying of Korah? You can see number 16 for that. God killed Ur, Judah's firstborn, Genesis 38.7. 1 Chronicles 10.13-14 indicates that Saul died for his sin. Clearly, this was at God's direction. God killed Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And all they did was tell a little lie. Or rather, not tell the whole truth. But not telling the whole truth is what? It's a lie, isn't it? It says, There will come times in God's inscrutable judgment whereby He deems it necessary to directly remove a person to eternity, whatever their destiny may be. What a sad reality. But yet it is reality nonetheless. Sin must be dealt with. And the greatest way to deal with it, and truly the only way to deal with sin, is to pray. As we've seen here in 1 John. McGee writes, I have observed something over a period of years. I've watched how God has dealt with troublemakers in the church. He says, I've not only seen Him remove them by death, but I've also seen Him set them aside so that they were of no more use in the service of God at all. Unfortunately, many of us put ourselves on a shelf and say that we can't serve God anymore long before God does. God is rich in mercy and loving kindness toward us. Very patient. Far more patient with us than we are even with ourselves and others. Nevertheless, do not think that just because we are saved that God no longer cares if we sin or not. Matter of fact, He cares all the more because we know better. We've been set free from it. And we're not bound to that sin anymore. Rather, we are set free from that sin to live surrendered to Him. That all that we are should be all for Him. Now we come back here to this passage and he says, in dealing with praying for sinners, praying for sin. First of all, for brethren, we need to pray for their repentance and restoration. We should always have the desires. As a matter of fact, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We should be the ones who are seeking peace between parties that are warring against each other, shouldn't we? We should be the ones playing the, the, in the middle, not playing devil's advocate, but going, we want to bring these two back together. We want to restore. One of the greatest doctrines that there is is that of restoration. But it's so little talked about. You think about this. When you repent or when you confess your sins to, to the Lord, right? You sin, you go, Lord, I lusted. Lord, I coveted. Lord, I was prideful. What happens? You are not reborn. You've already been reborn. But now you are restored. Renewed. There's a lot of great R words in the Bible. Redemption, restored, renewed, reconciled, right? God does this work. And it's an inward work to restore our spirit, our inner man, to His spirit. The reason why we get out of whack is because we allow how we're supposed to be following the Lord to be dictated by the outward circumstance or the outward man or even our own soul, mind, our feelings and emotions. And we let that uh, change uh, how we follow the Lord. Our spirit should be completely surrendered to Him, should be in tune and in line with Him. You know why we have revival meetings, spring and fall and things? It's not because half of y'all need to get saved again. That's not the case. Right? I hope, hope not, right? No, what's the case? It's that we need some renewal. We need some restoration. We need that life breathed back within us. We need times of repentance to be restored back. And the goal, every time that we find a brother or sister in the faith who has fallen, 
backslidden, committed outward sin, or is living in sin, what should be the goal? Pray and restore. Are there times it can't happen? Yes, sadly. Many times there are people who don't want to be restored. God gives a process of what that might look like, even where Paul talks about how they've tried and they've tried, they've gone through church discipline, they've prayed, they've prayed, they've had discussion after discussion, and he says we've now given his body over to the devil. It's a very rare case, a very severe thing. We should take sin serious. We should be humble enough in confession and confessing our sins enough to where we are more sensitive to our inward sins than we are to the sins of other people. How many times we see this great big old or little tiny sin rather, I guess, in the life of somebody else outwardly slipped up, maybe said a wrong word or reacted wrong, and we go, ooh, wow, something's not right with them. But inwardly, we're just as wicked as can be. We've got to be sensitive to our sin first before we can pray for the sins of others. But then as well, there's a praying, I believe, for the Antichrists. Those who have gone away because they've gone away because they're not truly born again. And I believe that we must pray for them as well. But Thatcher writes here, and I believe he's right, the only prayers a believer could offer on behalf of an Antichrist are prayers for that person's repentance and salvation. But notice the key for both the believer and the unbeliever. What should be prayed for? Repentance. One is repentance to be restored. One is repentance to be reborn. We should be continuously praying for those who are lost. Just as we had someone who was talking to a uh, shut-in on the phone and, and um, she asked me to pray for, for a granddaughter. She said she doesn't know the Lord. She's lost. And I love the sensitivity of this shut-in. She starts crying on the phone. Tears for someone who's lost, not just because they're a granddaughter, but because she said, I don't want them to go to hell, and I don't, I don't want anybody to go to hell. You know, we should have such a spirit as well amongst us that when we see unbelievers, we shouldn't go, just, I just want them to stay away from me. I don't, want, I don't want to see them. I don't want to be around them. What a sad thing. God, in all of His glory, looked down to the world of which He created, to the world of which now rejected Him, and what did he do? Ah, I'll just follow up the whole thing, every one of them. Now instead he put on flesh. And he came to them. And he dwelt among them. We understand that we live in a lost world, that we should be understanding enough that we go, you know, what does a lost world need more from me? Me to stay away from them or to be a light to them? I can't be a light to them if I'm not close to them. I can't be salt if I'm not close. You can't put salt in somebody's wound if you're not close enough, can you? you can't, salt can't bring healing unless it's applied. We must be understanding that while we are not of this world, we are in this world right now, and we have a job to do. We must pray for these dear folk. God cares enough for them to die for them. And we should certainly care enough for them to pray, and to be burdened for them. Sin and death. We've seen this in 16 and 17, these back and forth. And he says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. And we know that, don't we? You and I, because we're alive right now, you know the sins that you've committed? Sin's not unto death. <laughs> right? Praise God for that. 
But nevertheless, this should drive us to understand that I don't even want those in my life. I don't even want the sins not unto death in my life. I don't want those to rule over me. Sorensen writes, Anything which is unrighteous is sin. Sin at its very root definition is lawlessness. It is breaking the law of God. He says, or put it another way, anything which is not right is sin. Two, there are certainly are sins not unto death. In fact, the overwhelming majority of sin would fall in this category. However, John lets hang the possibility of the prospect of the sin unto death. We should too. We should understand that there are souls at stake, including our own. There are churches at stake. We must pray. Jackman writes, So the sinning Christian whose life in Christ is declining, though he is not dead nor sinning unto death, will be restored by the grace of God through the prayers of the Christian church family. We pause there. I want you to think back maybe in time for a little bit. Somebody that you know could have even been in this church, maybe in your family, your friends, could have even been you. And you were the wayward one. You were the lost one. You were maybe the, the saved one, but worldly one. That carnal Christian out in the world has their fire insurance, but spiritually just declining, 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 further and further and further from church and from the Lord. But people prayed. And they prayed and they prayed. You know, there used to be a time with prayer meetings and things where people would say, and sadly, we don't do it much anymore. I don't know if it's embarrassment. I don't know what it is. And, and, and neither here nor there. We used to go pray for so-and-so, my, my cousin or my brother. They don't know the Lord. They're going to die and go to hell. Used to be upset about that stuff. Used to be burdened for that stuff. And people would genuinely gather and pray that name over and over in prayer. What often happened, and many of you know these things, because they're not just stories. God moved. And in time, God saved that soul. God can still do the same today. I believe the difference is whether or not we're going to be burdened enough for lost souls and for backslidden believers or not. He says, He will be convicted. A true believer will be convicted by the Holy Spirit when he has been grieving or quenching brought to a renewed repentance and faith and restored to walking in the light with God. There is a very great stimulus to the church to pray believingly for the full restoration of Christians who wander or backslide. It is also an important duty. For as verse 17a reminds us, all wrongdoing, all, all of this is sin. Sin matters because it destroys fellowship with God and between Christians. And truly, the whole thrust of 1 John has been what? having assurance of fellowship with God and fellow believers. So what we need today, and we're close to this, we need to have a sensitivity to our sin. We need to have a sensitivity to sin within the church. We need to have a sensitivity enough not so that we would gossip or be puffed up because our sin isn't the same as someone else's sin, but rather that we would pray. Pray for the lost. Pray for the fallen. Pray for the backslidden. Pray for our own hearts. That we would confess our sin and find the restoration, the renewal, and the reconciliation that is found only through Christ and Christ alone. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. God, we're grateful that we can study your word and we can see what it means to pray for, for the lost, to pray for the backslidden. And God, I pray that you would help us today to, to understand our own sin, to pray, to confess, to be restored and renewed today. 
pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts for this worship service, Lord, that you would do great and mighty things today, that you would demonstrate your power and your presence and your glory amongst us, God, so that we might praise you and worship you, Lord, with right hearts today. God, we thank you for answered prayer. We thank you for meeting with us now, and I pray that you go before us and prepare us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys, we'll take a pause.